I dropped out from the room below where I've been trying to get some sleep. Sorry, I, uh, I didn't realize I was disturbing you. You see, every once in a while, I, I suddenly find myself dancing. Oh, I suppose it's some kind of infliction. sport you are listening to i saw in a movie an advice podcast co-hosted by your friendly cinematic pals at movie john i am the old sport and classic corner rosalie kicks and this is my film pal ryan silverstein the red herring and each episode we take a question from our listeners and go to the movies for the answer so ryan how are you? Because I am extremely tired. Uh, I am also tired, but that is par for the course for being at home. Um, I am a little excited, though, because for the first time ever, I was able to, uh, I mean, you know, thanks to the, the fact that we're still living in a global pandemic, uh, I was able to participate in the Sundance Film Festival for the first time ever, um, which is super exciting because... I was able to watch a couple of movies playing at the festival from my couch, which is, you know, not ideal, but um, in lieu of being able to go to Utah, it was uh, kind of nice. Yeah, I have to admit, like, so this was my third time covering some dumps, as I call it. And I have had, you know, I enjoyed going there. It's been fun. But this year was kind of nice because I got to be in my sweatpants the whole time and my dog was here and my husband was here because normally I have gone there the past two years by myself so you know it's it's been kind of difficult because I'm there all by myself and I end up talking to myself a lot and end up quite getting sick of myself Um, but this year it was nice because I actually had people that I could converse with after I watched a film But the other thing that was kind of nice was that I could fit more films in because I didn't have to like go from theater to theater, you know, and Mm -hmm. hike through snow. Uh, So that was kind of nice. But yeah, I definitely miss like the theatrical experience because I think some of the films I watched, I could tell I probably would, they probably would have impacted me differently if I saw it in a movie theater. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel that way about almost every film that I watch. Um, but but again, it was nice. Um, you know, my wife and I watched uh, two of the three films that we checked out together. Um, and it was nice that, you know, uh, I didn't apply for press credentials, but it was nice that, you know, a uh, non-press person could theoretically go in, buy tickets to a couple of movies uh, and watch them and participate in the festival. Like, I think that's really exciting. And I kind of hope that you know, even if it's just some, you know, some certain programs or some certain films, I hope that there's a virtual component going forward. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think every yeah. movie necessarily needs to be available that way. Because um, a lot of what a festival is, is building buzz for things that other people can't watch yet. But, um, you know, I think having some of them available is really nice. Yeah. And that's honestly something I was thinking about, especially being at home this year. I I mean, one thing is, as you know, 
Movie John is a very small publication. So when I've gone to Sundance in previous years, I essentially have self-funded myself to go there. You know, mm-hmm. so and it, and it is expensive, but I see it as a vacation because I work a day job. But what was nice about this year is essentially other than taking a couple of vacation days, I didn't have any like physical costs, you know. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that they do consider kind of continuing this virtual access because I think a lot more people got exposed to their programming. What was kind of cool about the virtual experience is they did have like a chat set up and something that, you know, you could go into 15 minutes prior to showtime, people could chat before the film. And it was pretty neat to see like where people were from and how the movie was reaching this huge audience. Because I do think with the travel costs and the lodging, it has kept people away from going to the festival previously. So I don't know. I I think that they are going to take that into consideration for the following years, you know, like all the different people that were able to access the festival this year was pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so we can get into, uh, I can talk quickly about the three films that I saw. Cause I don't think, I don't think that you've seen any of them. So I think this okay. would be a unique thing. So two of them were documentaries. Um, the first one is called Taming the Garden, uh, by Salome Joshi. She's a filmmaker from uh, Georgia. And I, I, we did watch part of the Q and A with her. She was very, uh, upfront about like, yes, not the state of Georgia down south, but the country of Georgia near Russia. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's a, a documentary that is very, like, there's no talking heads. It's all just like, you know, captured footage, sort of on location um, for this project by the richest man in the country. His quote unquote hobby is that he collects really nice looking large trees um, excavates them from where they are and moves them to a privately owned island that he has turned into a park. Um, so the documentary itself is kind of, it's kind of like a slow cinema approach. Like there's a lot of like static shots of trees on barges or being moved by large construction equipment. And this was one where I think the experience of watching in the theater would be very different because I think I would have gotten a little bit more lost in the imagery. Like some of the cinematography is gorgeous and comes across as stunning, but my wife and I spent a decent, a decent chunk of the film, like talking to each other and trying to figure out like, do they know what they're doing? Like, are they going deep enough to get enough roots that these trees are going to survive when they get where they're going? Like, um, you know, we, we had a lot of discussion uh, while watching the documentary, it was nice to pause it and talk through and like look up this guy and figure out like why does he have all this money? Like who is he? Like, um, and get a little bit more context that the film didn't provide. And I don't think that the film needed it, but I think I'm just a person that wants that context. And I think, you know, if I had read up on the news stories before watching the film, I would have had all the the context I needed. Apparently, in in Georgia, this was like a huge deal. So, so it's like there, like everybody knows about it. So there's not a lot to fill in. Um, but I found it really interesting, and like I said, the cinematography alone was well worth watching it for. Yeah, 
Yeah, I. it's funny, you know, when we were talking before, I actually don't know if I watched any documentaries. And that wasn't on purpose. I just, I don't tend to gravitate towards them. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you checked them out because I feel then our picks will have a variety. Yeah, I, I enjoy doc- documentaries in general. Um, I just always have enjoyed them, even before they were cool. I feel like, I feel like documentaries of any of any kind of movie in the past like ten years they've really taken off. Where I feel like streaming has made a lot more people check them out because they're more available, and I think people are. I don't know. For some reason, I feel like documentaries are connecting with people more than they did um, previously. Well, I think with uh, but, streaming. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say I think with streaming they have a place to go now. You know, whereas before streaming, they'd have to get a physical release. And a lot of companies, I don't know if they necessarily wanted to do that. So I think that's streaming has really played. It's been helpful to them, right? Because it's easy, like, okay, we'll plop it on here and it's available to people whenever they want to check it out. Yeah, and I think HBO had done a lot to like make interesting documentaries and kind of like put some branding on them because I I feel like like I'm imagining like two people in a video store and they're like picking out movies to take home on a Friday night and they're like not even looking at the documentary section right. but I feel like again like yes. when when they're like commingled it's easier for a documentary to just catch your eye and not exactly you know. exactly so I mean I guess that's like a win for the digital platforms and because we normally are always like saying physical media physical media Mm -hmm. but I think for documentaries it makes more sense because for me too like when I watch a documentary I probably want to watch it once I'm not gonna like buy it and rewatch it again yeah there's a couple documentaries I own on disc like the the one uh the war room which is a criterion release uh, about the 1992 Clinton presidential campaign. I've probably watched that like five or six times. <laughs> um, but yeah, there it's it's fewer uh, fewer and farther between for documentaries that I want to go back and revisit. And you know, I want I do want them all to get physical releases. But uh, I think streaming is good for accessibility. I always want the option to own something on disc. Is my yeah um, is is my official stance. <laughs> um, so the other documentary we watched was called Cusp. Uh, this was by uh, Isabel Bethencourt and Parker Hill. Uh, they're two young female filmmakers. And this is like a slice of life following uh, three teenage girls in like basically a summer that they have in Texas. And the footage that they get is very raw. They are not holding back. Um, you know, again, like they're, there is some interviews, but the interviews are more done as voiceover as you're watching other things happen. Um, and the girls open up about uh, like negative experiences they've had. You know, we see their home life. We see why they want to be, you know, out on night partying and drinking and experimenting with drugs and things. Because sometimes being at home is not great for them. Uh, so it's it was kind of difficult to watch at times. Like it was very uncomfortable because it is so like uncensored. Um, but I think it's really valuable to, you know, to document uh, the lives of these kinds of people. And I think, you know, we rarely see 
media that engages with the like thoughts and feelings of young women. And I think for that, uh, I'm like, I'm glad it exists. I think it's a really well-made film, uh, but it's not one I'm going to go back and revisit. Cause again, it, it, it is an uncomfortable watch because it, their lives are not comfortable. And, you know, they talk about uh, bad things that have happened to them and, you know, it's not an especially hopeful uh, look at their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I remember reading the description of that and I was just like, nope, <laughs> not because like I didn't think it would be good. I just was not in the mood to feel depressed, you know, or sad. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's another reason I will avoid documentaries because I ju- it's real and I just get sad. Uh, yeah, and Joel compared it to uh, the movie 13. I don't know if you've seen that. I actually uh, but, haven't uh, seen that, but I, I know the cover because I remember always seeing the cover when I worked in the video store. Uh, and that that's a fiction film, but I, I, I do think they cover similar ground. Okay. Very cool. Uh, and then the last film I watched was called uh, One for the Road. Uh, and I'm, I apologize because I'm probably going to mispronounce the director's name. Um, it's uh, Natawat Poonpuria. Uh, Poon um, he's Thai. Uh, the film kind of caught my eye because it's produced by Wan Kar Wai. Um, it's nakedly sen- sentimental. Um, it's about one guy who is living in New York. Uh, he comes from a very wealthy family in Thailand. His like kind of estranged best friend calls him back uh, because he has a terminal cancer diagnosis and he wants to go and visit all his ex before uh, he is no longer able to. So it kind of starts in a, a sort of like high fidelity vein of like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, figure out what's, what, what happened with my love life and where things went wrong, but I think it's it's much more about self-reflection and atonement. Like uh, in High Fidelity, John Cusack's character like is doing the self-reflecting as he's meeting up with all of his exes. But here the character has done that self-reflection and it's more about atonement and apologizing for not being supportive enough or just not being a good boyfriend. And, you know, uh, and then it's also about the relationship between the two friends and kind of what split them apart and what brought them together originally. And so it kind of jumps around in time. Like there's a lot of flashbacks to earlier moments and a lot of like parallel things that are happening. Like he'll be dancing with one of his exes who's a dance instructor and you'll flash back to a different, you know, like the first time they dance together and it'll be intercut. So the structure was really interesting it's definitely sappy, but sometimes that really works for me. And this was a case where it totally worked. And, you know, there are a few points in the film where I got very choked up and emotional over it. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that's going to connect with everyone that way, but I personally was just really engaged by the film and it's, it's really well shot. Um, it does have, you can definitely see some one car wide fingerprints on it in, in terms of some of the like camera choices um, but it's just a really, it's a really sweet movie. Um, it's got a fun soundtrack because the main character, his father was a DJ in Thailand and he has recordings of his old shows. So he'll put the cassette tape in as they're driving around. So they'll be driving through Thailand, listening to, you know, Elton John or one is the loneliest number. And, um, you know, th- those songs like sort of common and it kind of make, makes it one of those like East meet West kind of, 
uh, feelings overall because the characters spend a lot of time in New York as well as Thailand. So, um, you know, it just had a lot of things that appealed to me. And like I said, I, I really found myself engaging with the characters. Yeah, and I'm pretty excited. The film won an award, so it definitely will be available, I'm sure, at some point. Mm-hmm. Hopefully someone will pick it up and everybody can check it out. Yeah, definitely. So, so Rosalie, what were your what were your favorites from this year's Sundance? Yeah, so I ended up watching a record 23 films, which is a lot of movies. I do take notes during them because otherwise I would not be able to keep them straight. Uh, but essentially I did pick, you know, three that really stood out to me. And these were the ones that I wanted to share with the listeners. So number three is actually one that you did see Ryan, um, which is Judas and the black Messiah. And it's directed by Shaka King and This was actually his feature directorial debut, but prior to this, he worked on television series and he also made some short films. But this story tells uh, essentially the saga of what happened between Fred Hampton, who was the deputy chairman of the Black Panther Party and was assassinated in 1969 due to an informant, William O'Neill. Uh, but Fred is played by Daniel Kalua, which I hope I said that right. <laughs> and William is played by Lakeith Stanfield. And these two, I just, I thought their performance was impeccable. And I feel like this is one of those stories that I really did not know anything about it going in. And by the end, I was like, I am just so glad that this was told. You know, it's so important. And the subject matter, it is heavy, you know, and by the end of it, I wasn't like feel filled with like good feelings about anything. But yet I was so glad to learn about who Fred was and his story. And that makes watching it so worth it. But essentially, our government is really trash. (laughs) (laughs) And the police are just awful. And you know, that came clear to me through this, this picture. Uh, but I know you are covering it for movie, John, and you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I, I was really impressed by it. Um, I'm looking forward to watching it again, actually. Uh, I won't have time to do that before I finish writing my review, because this one is coming to uh, HBO Max on February 12th. Um so, so people will have the chance to see this very soon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was able to see it, not a part of Sundance officially, but with, you know, the studio and everything. So um, I just wasn't thinking of it as a Sundance movie, but it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I also was not familiar with the story. Uh, it's kind of funny, like Fred Hampton is a uh, supporting character in uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 from last year. Okay, um, I didn't watch that one yet, but I know you were a fan of that one too. Um, I like some of it. There's aspects of that movie I like. Okay. There's aspects of that movie that I have a lot of problems with. Um, but but in a similar way, it told a story in a much more detailed way than I had known about it and also has a lot to do with um things the government was up to in terms of trying to control 
people on the left side of the political spectrum in the late 60s. Uh, so they're, they're very, they're different stories. They're different parts of, of Fred's story in a way. So he kind of moves through Childish Chicago 7 uh, in like the first half of it. But I didn't know this, the rest of his story at all. You know, I think, um, and I read an interview with the director today in The Atlantic, and, it, you know, I think he said this during the Q&A probably as well, talking about how the Black Panthers, when they show up in movies, like, they're, like, background. And, you know, they're, like, frowning at people and wearing berets. And, like, that's kind of it. You know, they get, like, the iconography, but they don't really let the... You don't hear what their ideas were. You don't hear about what their story is. So, um, you know, I, I, I found this to be very interesting. Uh, and, like, like you said, the performances are just absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad that the film exists. But it's, it's not a feel-good film, but one I would definitely recommend to everybody. Yeah, and, I mean, not to keep going on and on about it, but also the the lady that was cast as Fred's, um, I guess it was his girlfriend, because I don't mm-hmm. think they were ever married. She is also amazing. And she was in the Q&A. Her name is Dominique Fishback. And I I just thought her performance was wonderful. So definitely when this comes to HBO Max, you should watch it because you won't regret it. Like, you know, like we both said, it's not something that's going to make you feel good, but you're going to be glad you watched it. So check it out. Uh, As for my second pick, it goes to pleasure. And this tells the story of a 20 year old who's named Bella that leaves her small town in Sweden to move to Los Angeles and become a porn star. And wow. So this was the director's first feature. And she's a Swedish writer-director. Her name is Ninja Thyberg. And it is not one of those flicks that I'm going to be like itching to watch again anytime soon. But it is one that will stay with me for a while. Uh, There are moments that are just so completely uncomfortable, yet I loved spending time with the characters, especially the main character. Uh, And I'd have to look up her name because I forgot to write it down. But what was so interesting, what I, again, I love about film festivals is that you can attend Q&As afterwards and hear the director or the writer or the actors talk about the film. And I just love that aspect of it. But in this Q&A, it was learned that the actress Sophia Capel, who plays Bella, this was actually like her first feature. Um, I wouldn't have known that by watching her performance. It was great. But the other thing is it's really giving you a glimpse into this world that I don't think a lot of us know about, the porn industry. And I will say the director, in hearing her talk about it, she really immersed herself to like learn about the industry. She was actually planning to shoot the film originally in Sweden, ended up deciding no, have to shoot in the U.S. because Sweden doesn't really have a porn industry. The U.S. obviously does. So she set the film in L.A. Uh, and again, I there are moments where you're definitely going to feel uncomfortable, but I think it's worth a watch. 
And there is no, like the runtime is not wasted. Like this director, everything, the choices seem to be very deliberate and she, and was really thought through. So this is somebody like you definitely want to watch out for. And personally, I would give her money to do whatever she wants and wants to make. So I don't know if that one was on your radar, Ryan, but I highly recommend checking it out. I'm hoping it gets picked up by somebody. Yeah, it, it sounds super interesting. And I really enjoy when a director sort of takes a fiction film, but sets it in a world that they really spend a lot of time sort of learning about and understanding and trying to bring, you know, realistic aspects of that to the screen. So it definitely sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that one. Uh, and I will be writing a review. So it will be up at moviejohn.com. And then my first pick goes to the film Passing. And this is another directorial debut. However, it's coming from a veteran actor, Rebecca Hall. And this story is adapted from a 1929 novel by Nella Larson and tells the story of two former high school classmates that have an unexpected meeting in a tea room in New York City years later. So they haven't seen each other for a long time. And this meeting leads to a series of events that change their lives, in particular due to one of the women that has been passing as white. So, you know, a lot of just emotions conflicts arise. And I was just completely enthralled with everything about this film. I think the story is fantastic. The runtime is very swift. And again, no time wasted. Like everything was very deliberate. The choices were made consciously. And again, this was another situation where I was so appreciative of hearing the Q&A because Rebecca Hall mentioned like why because it's shot in black and white and why she chose to do that because she feels like this subject matter there's like a lot of ambiguity and gray but like people think it's just black and white and I also just loved hearing her talk about her process uh, she had essentially wrote the script like 14 years ago and like carried it around and would show people, you know, that she felt safe showing it to. Uh, but over the years, it of course changed and she altered it. Uh, but you could tell like she put a lot of work into it. Um, but it also comes from a personal place because during the Q&A, she talked about she learned that in her family history, she has relatives that also passed as white and that this novel she found when she was a young younger person and it just really sat with her so there it's coming from a very personal place and you can tell that and the acting from the stars Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson absolutely superb like Tessa Thompson I've seen her now the, the last two movies I've watched her in have been period pieces and it just suits her so well. Like, I don't know. She just looks like somebody that transported from like silent era, 
<laughs> or and Ruth Nega as well. Like they they both just mm-hmm. remind me of like these old classic film actors. And so I highly recommend this movie. It, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Rebecca Hall in general. Uh, so I'm very excited uh, to hopefully see it because I'm, I'm sure that'll get a release somewhere. Oh, I'm sure it's going to. Um, but other than that, the only I just wanted to make some honorable mentions that I will be reviewing for Movie John. Um, they didn't fit into my top three, but John in the Hole, Strawberry Mansion, Mass, and The Pink Cloud. Those were just some that I just, they really sat with me. And I feel like out of the 23 that I saw, those are ones that I most want to talk about and have people add to their watch list. So again, check moviejohn.com because I will be posting reviews as I have time to write them. Uh, And of course, we will continue to share with our listeners when these movies become available. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Um, Are you ready? Should we go to the question? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Dear, I saw in a movie, I am looking for some dancing tips. What film do you feel showcases a world-class hoofer? Thanks for your help future tap dancer. So my immediate reaction to this question was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, without a doubt. And if our listener has not seen these two hoofers, they, I feel, are the perfect place to start in the dancing realm. And Ryan, I don't know, like, have you watched any Astaire and Rogers? I have seen, so they collaborated... Uh, ten times. Ten times? Yes. Yeah. I have seen one of them. Okay. Do you want to take a, a guess as to which one? Swing time. Yes, that's the one that I've seen. <laughs> which I, <laughs> I guessed because it's a criterion. Oh, and... it's funny. I caught it in TCM last year. Okay. And I also, it's funny. I don't think I have seen swing time. But I also think, is that the one that has blackface? Yes, Fred Astaire does blackface in Swing Time. Yes. Um, but other than that, it's a very pleasant film and a very fine romance. Um, I have in my letterbox review that there's some weird jokes about pants, which I don't quite remember, but I'm sure were very <laughs> funny at the time. Yeah, I haven't caught that one, but I know it's a film that people mention because of the unfortunate blackface that's in it. But I will say I'm glad like when they show it on TCM they're not taking that out, right? Like mm-hmm. they're talking about why this was done, why it was wrong. Uh, Cause I don't know. I always feel like it's weird if they try to erase it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I've run into, you know, a few times holiday Inn is a notable <laughs> example of yes. a movie. I love that has some uh, unfortunate blackface in it. And, you know, even White Christmas, which I really love, doesn't have blackface, but it has a song about um, missing minstrel shows, which is pro- is just as problematic, honestly. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, you know, so, um, and the film that I talk, it bisects this issue in an interesting way. So 
Um, you know, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but I think, you know, what I like, what I appreciate about TCM and Criterion and everything is like they put the context around it and acknowledge that like, yes, this was always wrong. It's something, it's not like we're excusing the past, but, you know, preserving it and not shying away from it, I think is more important than trying to bury it and pretend that it never happened. Agreed. Yes. And again, that's what I love about the two platforms is they do provide the context, which some streaming services do not. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, back to, to the film I selected. So I remember the first time I discovered Astaire and Rogers and it was at the video store that I worked at West coast video. There was actually a box set that they were selling and I saw it and I immediately gravitated towards it and was like, what is this? And we had a drawer that was at the video store that you would put things in if you wanted to purchase it. And then it would kind of just sit there until you had enough money to buy it. Well, Mm -hmm. I ended up just taking it (laughs) on my last day. (laughs) I'm like, uh, I'm poor, but I want to watch this. So I took it and it had like four or five DVDs in it, but Top Hat was one of them. And that was the first one that I ended up watching. And I don't, and I guess, you know, you answered before, you've only seen Swing Time. So you haven't seen this one. So I'll just give a brief synopsis. It's a 1935 screwball, like musical comedy. Fred Astaire plays this guy, Jerry Travers, and he's come to London to star in his producer pal show. And while there, he bumps into Dale Tremont, who's played by Ginger Rogers, after he's causing essentially a lot of noise in his room. Like, they're in a hotel, and he's sleeping above her, and is being very loud because he, of course, is dancing. (laughs) And she comes up and is like, hey, cut that out. So that's how they initially meet. And throughout the film, he's attempting to win her heart. However, there is another per- a love in- another love interest that's involved, a fashion designer. He's also trying to buy for her. And as in most screwball comedies, there's a lot of like mistaken identities that lead to a lot of confusion and tomfoolery. Uh, but I find it to be a lot of fun. And the film was itself directed by Mark Sandrick, who would actually go on to direct Astaire and Rogers in many of their pictures. And as we were mentioning earlier, Top Hat was actually their fourth collaboration. They collaborated a total of 10 times, but this specific movie was their most successful and the one that they're most known for. And the songs were written by Irving Berlin, who also did White Christmas, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wrote uh, all the songs for Holiday Inn. White Christmas was originally in Holiday Inn. And then like the movie White Christmas uh, has the song at the beginning and the end of the movie because it's it's not a sequel, but it's like a spin off like i don't know there's not it's not like it's the same characters but they took that song and turned it into a whole movie yes now in terms of dancing 
I just feel like there's why I selected this movie is because I feel there's no one better to turn to than Twinkle Toes, a stare. Like he is just iconic with dancing and he's so fun to watch. And any movie I've seen him in, I love that he just starts like randomly dancing. And most of the time he's using the dancing to make a point. And he's like, he'll essentially like, if he's arguing with someone, he'll be like, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to tap now. <laughs> like that's how I'm going to prove that I'm right. And every time I watch one of his movies, like when I just recently revisited Top Hat, I'm always like wishing that I knew how to tap dance. And I also want like the full like Top Hat, the tails, and I really want a cane. Like, I don't know if you ever feel like that when you're watching, like, a dancing movie. But, like, I just really wish I knew how to dance. Yeah, I, it's, like, I, yes. <laughs> um, I wish I knew how to dance like that. Uh, I also wish that you could still go see people dance like that. Like, People tap dancing to live music and everyone's on a big stage and you're sitting at a little table and you're having a, a cocktail and you're dressed really nice. There's something about that that is just really just like a culture that doesn't seem like it really exists anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, a lot of people loved and I'm not going to go on a huge tangent about it, but a lot of people loved La La Land. I, was like, I knew they... you were going to bring that up. <laughs> but I'm like, they were not dancers. Okay? They were not dancers. Mm -hmm. And you could tell. You could tell that they, like, took, like, the quick course or, oh, what is that that book? Oh, like, Dancing for Dummies. <laughs> they took Dancing for Dummies and then they were placed in that movie. And it just really frustrated me throughout, like, especially watching like an Astaire picture where you're just like, this guy was a professional dancer and all he did was dance. Like, that's what he did. Um, but I'm not going to go on a tangent about it. Instead, I'm going to talk to you about my favorite scenes of the film. And I actually did send you two video clips. Did you get a chance to watch them? I did, and I enjoyed them very much. Very good. So I will post the clips online uh, so that our listeners can see them too. But essentially, the first clip I wanted to talk about was top hat, white tails, or white tie and tails. And there are so many reasons that I love this sweet sequence, but my favorite things about it are, well, one, a stairs attire, like he's wearing a top hat, of course, tails. And then he has a cane and he dances with this cane that like ultimately becomes like his dancing partner. But I don't know what it is about a cane, but I just think you it's love class. canes. I love them. <laughs> like, and I love how he utilizes the cane. I was actually reading and this was just some like goofy IMDb trivia uh, before the show 
But it was saying how he went through like 13 canes because when he would mess up, like, because he was a perfectionist, like dancer. Mm -hmm. So if he messed up, he'd be like, cut. Like he would cut instead of the director. And then he would break the cane (laughs) over his leg. And I was just like, oh my God. But apparently like by the time they got to like, okay, this is the cut. Like this is the one. It was like the last cane. And I I just feel that sounds very stressful. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of, because I feel like uh, Gene Kelly has a similar similar reputation for perfection. Um, and so I, I can imagine him doing that also. But that musical number is amazing. It, it's so much fun. Um, you know, the especially with a big group of dancers like that, it, you get the whole just the the way it fills the frame i just really enjoy yeah i i love it too and then the second sequence in the film that i really like is cheek to cheek and this song obviously has become an american classic at this point like many other films like purple rose of cairo even the green mile have paid homage to it And in this sequence, Astaire and Rogers, to me, look like they're floating, like they're clouds. And I just love it so much. And something interesting that I learned when I was looking up information about the film is that, and this is also a piece of advice for our listener who wants to be a future tap dancer, that apparently Ginger wanted to wear that dress and I know Ryan you watched the clip of it but the dress was like me it had like feathers on it like did you notice that Mm -hmm. yeah so like basically like the top and then like part of the bottom are like these apparently they were ostrich feathers and Fred was like very against it because like as they were moving around these feathers like kept falling out so he was like concerned like one of them were going to slip on these feathers. But she like demanded to wear that dress. And, you know, it ended up being a disaster. Like they had to shoot a lot of takes. And after that, Ginger became known as Feathers. Like that's what Astaire <laughs> called her because of that moment. But I just want the listener to think about like, you do want to look really sharp when you're dancing but I think you also need like a practical outfit like you don't want to have something that could cause you or maybe even your dancing partner harm and so reading that made me think about that and the same goes for the shoes and this little trivia really disturbed me apparently like they had to have a lot of shoes for ginger for that particular scene because the shoes were uncomfortable and like they kept filling with blood. And I was like, that is disgusting. But yeah. also painful. So like if you are gonna get tap shoes, like make sure that they're comfortable. Cause if you're like gonna dance for like hours, you don't wanna have shoes mm-hmm. that are gonna hurt you. Like so those were two things that I like I took from that sequence and why I picked it. And throughout the movie, there are a total of actual five dancing sequences with Astaire and Rogers. 
And to be honest, they are just all a delight and I love them. Yeah, I think, uh, like, I, I don't know, personally, I, I love musicals um, and especially older musicals from the 40s and 50s. I just I just really enjoy them because they have that sense of magicalness about them. And mm-hmm. I feel like the way that they're shot, it's shot to show off the dancing. And I feel like so many musicals from the past 10 years or so, like, cut away from the performers. And I'm, I'm like, no, like, the magic for me is seeing someone perform something incredible that like, you know, I could never get that close to them if we were, if I was watching it in a theater. So like, I want to see, you know, the way their legs move. I want to see how they're dancing in rhythm, you know? Yeah. And that was also something I was reading about that I guess like Fred Astaire really played a part in assisting with the camera work, right? To like make sure that yeah, this is really going to capture the dancing, you know? And I thought that was kind of interesting. And this flick in particular, Top Hat, actually has the most dance sequences that him and Astaire did together, like in a film. So that's, you know, another reason I think, hey, you know, check this one out if you're going to watch one. There's actually a scene towards the beginning of the film. I didn't send it to you, but Fred dances on like this it's almost like a sand type substance because after ginger comes up to his room and is like you're being too loud he like puts this sand on the floor to like quiet the tapping but every Mm. time i watch that i'm just like how did he not slip and fall like how did he just continue to dance without you know basically falling on his but like, I, I don't think I could do that. So he's so impressive to me. And I love how serious he was about his craft. Uh, so he's someone I, I, I definitely admire. So I highly recommend you check out this movie. Yeah, I definitely uh, would like to see the other nine collaborations that they had. Um, but I'm going to move this one to the top of that list for sure. Cool. What did you pick for the listener? Sure. Uh, So I also went back to the 40s. Um, I picked Stormy Weather, which is a 1943 film. Uh, It takes its name from a song that came out 10 years earlier, 1933. And it's based on the life and times of dancer Bill uh, Bojangles Robinson. And he plays a like fictional version of himself. Um, And it's so it's kind of a a biopic in a way um, where, you know, it, it starts with him talking to some neighborhood kids as an older person. And that sort of goes back to the beginning of his career. Um, along the way, he meets uh, a singer named Selena Rogers played by Lena Horne. Um, she's not, her character is not really based on a real person, but they wanted to have a love story for the film. So uh, this movie is 77 minutes long. There are 20 musical numbers in the in the film. Oh my god, that is <laughs> insane. They were probably like so tired. Well, what's that. cool about uh, well, what, what's cool about Stormy Weather is many of the musical numbers are by other uh, prominent black artists. Okay. Uh, so Cab Calloway is in it, the Nicholas Brothers are in it, 
um there's a whole there's just a whole it's like a whole celebration basically and to me like that's what i really took away from it is you know i feel like there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about um a lot of movies about that have black protagonists are about suffering and this is a movie that is really celebrating it's really joyful um you know not that he doesn't have challenges in his career or over the course of the film but I mean, really, the bulk of the movie are all of these musical and dance numbers and just showcasing these Black performers. And, you know, just, I don't know, seeing them on screen just really was impressive to me. Um, You know, there are some stereotypes that get perpetuated. Um, There is some, like, minstrelsy, you know, being performed by... um, by black performers in the film um and again like i saw this on tcm last year and they they talked a lot about that in the introduction um which i thought was very interesting but it also you know so it kind of filled in a a history gap of something i didn't know about and then the numbers themselves are incredible so i sent you two of them um the first one i sent you is jump and jive which is sung by cab calloway and then the nicholas brothers have an extended dance during the song um, and it's funny that you picked Top Hat because Fred Astaire told the Nicholas Brothers that this number was the greatest musical, movie musical number he had ever seen. That's so cool. Yeah, I was thoroughly impressed with the clip you sent. And I definitely want to watch this movie. Uh, I just have to track it down. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, seeing Cab Calloway, who, like, I you know, previously would associate him with the Blues Brothers movie because he has a great number um, in that movie. So it was cool to go back in time and see him, you know, sort of in his prime, leading a big band. And then the Nicholas Brothers, you know, there's one of them, um, one of the two brothers, like he has a smile on his face the entire time through this elaborate tap sequence that they are tapping and dancing through the band. Like they're dancing on like the music stands of the band. They're dancing on top of the piano and like a call and answer section at one point. They're jumping over each other and doing splits. I mean, it's, it is incredible. I, I like, I really just have never seen anything quite like it. Um, and it's, it's a great song. And again, it's just, to me, it's just so joyful. Um, you know, and then the other, uh, sequence that I sent you was Lena Horne singing uh, this, the title song Stormy Weather and there's not a lot of dancing in that number but I, I, what I liked about it is that sense of melancholy and like the way that she performs it you can see that those lyrics are kind of about you know not only because it's a love song it's like a melancholic love song about you know not finding love and you know the promise of a sunny day but the weather is stormy and it's raining and I think it works on that level and also kind of works about talking about the black experience in America and on film where, you know, this, like, this was a groundbreaking movie. Um, and this, um, this like spawned other musicals in the 1940s, you know, that were still catered towards a black audience, but at least showcased black performers on film. Um, but what I love about that sequence besides, you know, her actual singing is amazing. Uh, but there's a part where she's singing in front of a window and there's like lightning and it's raining and then the camera sort of pushes through the window and there's like a slow dance of people in the rain, almost like a, 
like a parade type dance. Um, and it was just like, I don't know, it just stood out when I was watching because it's, it's just so interesting. And again, something I just don't feel like I've really seen before. Yeah, it definitely seems, like you just said, a movie that you're not going to just find anywhere. And yeah, I, I wish that I've watched it before. I'm just so glad that you picked it because you put it on my radar now. Yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised. It's just something I saw on the TCM schedule and made sure I um, was able to watch it. I think there was a DVD release at one point because I know it's been inducted into like the National Film Archive and things. Um, oh, cool. So I think there is a DVD out there uh, that I will have to track down at some point. And it looks like it's available to like rent digitally from places. So Oh, nice. Uh, okay. It is, yeah, it is somewhat available. The other thing that's interesting is the original print of the film. So when they played on TCM, it was black and white. Uh, but the original print of the film was actually done in sepia tone. Uh-huh. Uh, so everything was in that like mono brown tan kind of shade, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, and then I looked up some of the pictures of like the, you know, um, like promotional images and stuff. And I think just to see what the performers kind of looked like in color and, Again, like, it's a very short movie. Um, you know, it's an hour and 17 minutes, 20 musical numbers. It's it's like the perfect thing to just sit down and watch. And again, there are some problematic elements. It is from the 1940s. There's stereotyping. There's stuff that, you know, doesn't hold up today. But again, as a window into a cultural experience that is not my own, I just found it utterly fascinating. And again, just I just loved watching it. Yeah, I, I'm like I said, I'm really glad that you picked it, and I do hope that these choices help our listener out in their dancing career or endeavor or whatever they're trying to do. At the very least, I hope they find inspiration or maybe find a cool tune to dance to. Exactly. Uh yeah, and they'll have to let us know where they find tap shoes at because I really want a pair. Uh, but before we sign off, don't forget that you can find a breakdown of the episodes, including this one, on moviejohn.com. And you can also subscribe to our quarterly print movie zine. And our first issue of 2021 will celebrate and feature the use of color in film. Don't let those gray days of winter get you down. Get lost in the brilliant hues of Movie John's winter issue. And that is available for pre-order right now at moviejohn.com shop. And you can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie. And if you're seeking advice, you can send us questions to dearisawitinamovie at gmail.com or send us postal mail. You can write to us at P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA, 19145, attention, Movie John. And Ryan, tell us where people can find you. Sure, uh, you can find me on moviejohn.com. Uh, I'm managing editor of the website, uh, so you can find 
my writing there as well as a bunch of cool feature articles and a ton of reviews that we've been publishing lately, including a bunch of stuff from Sundance. It was really cool that, you know, Rosalie, you got a, a pass to the festival, but we also had, um, you know, a few other people see movies from Sundance uh, and chime in on them as well, uh, which was super cool. So you can find me there and then you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Silp or whatever. That's with the B. Um, and then we're also very happy to be a part of the Movie John podcast network. We now have like eight or nine podcasts uh, yes. that, that we've all joined forces. Yeah, there's so many radio shows that you can listen to. Uh, but as for me, you can find me on Instagram at the.oldsport or Twitter at Bonjour Old Sport. And then check out my other podcast, which is part of the Movie John Podcast Network, Cinematic Crypt, in which I go six feet under to uncover films of Hollywood's past. And also because I don't really sleep at night, I have started another podcast with my film pal and best friend forever, Katie McBrown, called Best Friends Forever Pod. And this is also part of the MJ Pod Network. And each episode, we invite you to our slumber party and gab about a flick that features our favorite heartthrob. And I think there's going to be a teaser at the end of this episode. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. But both of these shows and I Saw It in a Movie can be found for download and available at moviejohn.com and just go under MJ Pods. And Last but not least, before we leave you, Ryan, do you have a piece of advice for our listener? I do. Uh, so at one point, Lena Horne's character asks uh, Bojangles Robinson's character, uh, what are you doing down here? And he said, dancing. On account of the bartender being sick, the cook had to take the bartender's place. The waiter took the cook's place, and I had to take the waiter's place. <laughs> so if you're pursuing a career in the arts, you have to be ready to do a little bit of waiting tables and kind of be ready for anything. That is really good advice. I like that. <laughs> so mine comes from Jerry Travers, who is played by Fred Astaire. And this advice comes from the Irving Berlin song, Cheek to Cheek, in which he says, heaven, I'm in heaven. And the cares that hung around me through the week seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. So I just wanted to remind our listener, this makes sense when you have com comfortable shoes, practical clothes, and a cane. Because if you have a cane, that can help like sturdy your balance. Right, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Cans are great. <laughs> I need a cane. <laughs> but until next time, we thank you for listening. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>